You're listening to Deeper Magic. Hey everyone, welcome to the Deeper Magic Podcast. I am Peter Kapsner and I'm here with Anna Kapsner. Say hi, Anna. Hi, Anna. I have missed that. And also, after I hit the record button, that was the longest one second before it started counting. Did you see how long that took? Well, I think because you and I live in sacred uh, time, eternal time. Or we both just have ADHD. Probably. Probably. (laughs) Well, we're glad you're with us. Thanks for listening again. Uh, If you've listened in the past, uh, you know that I'm a professor of Christian ministry as an institution. I, unfortunately for many people, train future pastors in the the church and uh, have been in ministry for for a number of years, and uh, and Anna, you're, I'm here. Got, you are, but you've got a new update in life. I mean, you're one year away from finishing I'm university. So close to graduating, I cannot wait. Yeah, it's, you can see yeah. the light at the end of the tunnel. Oh my gosh, yes. And I have like all of my. I'm an English major, and I have all of my like science courses in my spring semester, and I cannot like. I'm so excited that those classes are my spring semester of my final year because otherwise it would just be such a slog. I was going to say, like, science for an English major oof. must must have to access a, a usually atrophied part of your brain. Yeah. I'm not oh, even yeah. sure which hemisphere science finds itself related to English, but I bet it's not, not the close. same one. Not it's close. Not the same one. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I have a couple of good friends in the bio department or in the chem department or whatever. And so I'm like, that'll be... That'll be helpful to have their input, but um, I also am potentially looking at taking basic alchemy or whatever that is, and I'm very excited about the idea of turning things Are into gold. Are you going gold. to Hogwarts? I guess. Something <laughs> what like a great that. Title. It was like yeah. alchemy for beginners or like something like that, and I was like, oh, I'm here for this. I love that. I love that. Well, this is season two of Deeper Magic. We decided we did do season is one. season two? Where, uh, we decided we had season two. Yeah. And we said it uh, the other day, which was We was just took to a long about. impromptu break. We did take a long impromptu break. We started this podcast with the idea that there's a lot of people who are interested in spiritual, relational, emotional kinds of conversations, mm-hmm. but maybe have found themselves on the outside of institutionalized versions of faith, or maybe have never yeah. been introduced to them. And we're not here to pile on institutional versions of faith. I still participate in them myself. And yet I think at the same time, there are longstanding gaps uh, that at best have just not helped people in life and sometimes mm-hmm. they've even caused some pain. So uh, hopefully this is a place to recognize that there there really is a deeper magic in the world, even if sometimes how we've experienced faith conversations through institutions or maybe sometimes our family or through friends or books or podcasts yeah. or people or whatever, sometimes it, it just gets really confusing. I know that you and I have talked recently, but we talked in our family about the idea that please don't interpret who Jesus is through how you've experienced Jesus in my faith journey as your father. Yeah. I mean, I would hope there has been some some good in that, but inevitably there has been, uh, let's just say that I don't live in a one-to-one relationship and, and magnifying <laughs> who Jesus is through my life. You're not the eternal channel of Jesus Christ's <laughs> spirit at all moments uh, but, in your life. Yes. If, if I am a vessel, it's quite imperfect. It's three times. in the morning when I come to wake you up to tell you I've thrown up again. Yeah. No, yeah. Definitely uh, I'm not terribly Christ-like in no. those moments. You know, <laughs> patience and kindness and gentleness and all of those. All the fruits whatever, of the spirit exactly, or whatever they are. All of those. Exactly. Yeah, so, uh-huh. so anyway, we're glad you're all listening. We're we're kicking off season two here and thought we would just talk a little bit about what uh, we've been up to mm-hmm. and also more importantly, some just, I think some of the important conversations of, of spirituality in our, in our own lives that we hope connect with a lot of different people's lives. And then we'll end this episode with some conversations about the idea of the hesed or the relational 
kind of bonding love of God and how so many of us don't live in high Hesed kinds of environments. And we'll describe that a little bit more in a minute. Yeah, yeah. And I think one thing that you and I have talked about a little bit, I think, in some previous episodes and then talked quite a bit about over the summer um, and just is like coming to mind again as we're sitting here is I think we've talked so much about the idea of community and of discipleship and living a life that is accountable to more than just yourself and more than just your individual, like, I mean, life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, right? Like more, more accountable to more people than just yourself. What? The American um, principles are, right? are not Isn't that necessarily crazy? consistent with kingdom stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, but I just am like thinking about that again here. And I feel like as we get back into this and as we get into season two and start kind of covering more and more topics here. Um, I mean, I just want to like say again that we are not the authority on anything and and we're just here trying to live our lives and trying to build community and have discipleship in some kind of capacity. And the only way that we really know how to do that is with each other and, and in community and through conversation. Um, and that sometimes that conversation is helpful for other people to hear as well. And it's helpful for us to hear. And very little of what we talk about is scripted. We talked just generally speaking before what we want to talk about. But last week was a great example. We meant to kick (laughs) off season two last week. And I sat down with you and broke open the Barbie movie. We had a, what, two and a half, three hour conversation about it? Yeah. Yeah. And we didn't record it. We didn't record it, but it it surfaced a lot of really vulnerable things for the two of us that I think we probably will want to revisit Again, yeah. at another time, but uh, but certainly this is not meant to be a heavily produced. We no. did all the scripting kind of stuff. It really is just father and daughter, daughter and father talking about mm-hmm. these different things. So another dimension, and this is maybe my check in on this, is that I am I just finished sabbatical. Yeah. And so for the first time in 20 years, I took a season away from teaching in the classroom. I taught some online courses, which online teaching is, is tough. It, there is yeah. no hesed. There's no relationship. There's no bonding. It's, it's purely transactional. And so it can still be fun in some ways, but it's very different than when I'm in a classroom with 20 or 30 students and we're really getting to know each other. And so I took a break from that, really felt led to take a break from that and have some, I suppose, ruminations I would love to share briefly in just a minute. Mm-hmm. But I think the concepts of, of sabbatical, one thing that rubs me the wrong way about it is it seems a little overly sanctimonious and and only reserved for the the professional Christians get a chance to take a sabbatical, whether it's a pastor in a church. Uh, it's maybe a little bit more understandable in university where sabbaticals are given to professors to give some time for more research and writing. And so it's oftentimes a sabbatical in that situation mm-hmm. is to remove their classroom responsibilities so that they can research and contribute to knowledge and do all of that. But even then, it still feels like it's for the elitist kind of people that get a chance yeah. to take a sabbatical. And 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 I I have I found in the nine months off that to let the ground go fallow or just simply meaning I'm not going to try to produce a bunch of stuff for nine months mm-hmm. was really quite the exercise and really lovely. And it just made me think, is it possible to let the ground go fallow as it were when you just don't really have the possibility and the circumstances by which to do it, meaning you've got young children. It's not right. like you're just going to tap out for nine months and, and say, hey, kiddos, I'll check in again yep. And, yep. And, and enjoy your Cheetos or whatever. And Nine months of Cheetos. Yikes. That would be a long time. Would you at least get some variety, like mm. some of the puffed ones, some of the like spicy ones? I want to say yes, but okay. the puffed ones do nothing for me. They kind I of disintegrate. Yeah, that's and, a That's a hot take maybe, but 
No, no, no. I, don't I like hate them. the puffed ones too. They're and weird. then the spicy ones are hard too. Yeah. And I feel like I'm eating package or peanut packages, packaging peanuts. What yeah. is that? Those <laughs> yeah. things. Yeah. No, those little styrofoam <laughs> yeah. packing uh-huh. peanuts. That's those exactly yeah. what packing a puffed peanuts. Cheeto tastes Why like. Why was that so hard for my brain? <laughs> was a lot of peas. And there was a lot, was of, a lot of peas in yeah, there. Yeah, that was a lot of, was a lot, a lot of, of words. So, yeah, so I think you can't take a break from kids like that. You also, I think a lot of jobs, of course, you could mm-hmm. never go to your employer and say, hey, I need to duck out for nine months and right. just sort of let the ground go fallow. They'd be like, I think we'll have a permanent fallow for you yep. if, if you're going to yep. do something like that. So I think one of the questions that I have, and I'll just ask you uh, about it, is can you actually stay involved in your regular life, but almost have a season of fallowness? If, if to let the ground go fallow means you're not trying to produce something all the time, you're not mm-hmm. animated each day that you get up by production, I've got to do more, I've got to do this, I've got to advance, I've got to do whatever. Is it possible to just simply be in the day in a different kind of way hmm. where you're not pushing forward towards something? There's just, there's such an energy in American culture, it seems to be pushing forward into whatever is next. So if you can't have the, like the sanctimonious version of sabbatical that I had a chance to get as an elitist, important per- person. Oh, really? Yeah. Is it, is it possible? How many letters do you have after your name? Let's see. The... M D I V P H D. That's seven. R E V. That's 10. I was going to say seven is the number of perfection. So you actually went a little too yeah, far. I, I did. Well, that's that clearly I had too much education, mm-hmm. but you don't know what I mean? Like, could you actually yeah. stop as a, as a 21 year old in the middle of trying to slog through your senior year of school? Is there a way to keep slogging, but have it do for more of a fallow place as opposed to I'm trying to produce a bunch of stuff? If that even yeah. makes sense. No, it does make sense. Um, I think hmm, that's an interesting question. I think I'm running into some of that right now because this semester I'm taking two literature classes, my senior seminar class and a fiction writing course. And so I'm really studying the things that I love and I know and I'm like good friends with multiple people in almost every single one of those classes. Um, And so it really is just me going from room to room every day, hanging out with my friends, talking about the things that we all love, but it is still work. There is still production that has to happen there. There are still expectations um, and like guidelines around how I get to how I get to go about my day, which I think is is tricky. But but this season feels more fruitful than other semesters that I've had in in school because I I came to kind of the unfortunate conclusion last fall that I was like, oh, I think I actually really don't like school. Um, I think I just got really used to it and I like the structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but I actually don't love being in academia. Um, and so yeah, this semester has so far in the in all of the two weeks that I've been back in classes, I feel like it has been already more, fruitful but there is still like an urgency behind it in a lot of ways um but yeah I'm not really sure even what that fallowness would look like um without fully stopping actually what you're doing and as you're talking I wondered let me just posit this scenario where you do stay actively involved in your job or your in lives and all of that but you're just you simply sort of get up each day and try to just live in that day for a while yeah. versus worried about how is today going to inform tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I think that just so many of our days are 
what I'm doing today is important for tomorrow, but it's hardly important for today. Yeah. And, and I think what I ran into a little bit when I just didn't have a, the the energy required to teach in class, there were some mm-hmm. days that I got up and I thought, oh, what am I even going to do today? Yeah. Which is a really, first, I just started feeling irrelevant very fast. It's, it's, it's really interesting how quickly yeah. you are forgotten, for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been a visible presence at a local university for a long time. And I think within about 11 minutes, uh, I was relatively forgotten in yeah. a lot of ways. Maybe a passing, where's Kapsner? But yeah, like that right. was Right, but there was yeah. not, yeah. So I just wonder if, it, if there isn't a way, it's not about letting it go fallow maybe so much as it is just simply being in your day in a different kind of way where you're not worried about what you're doing today and how it impacts tomorrow. You just mm-hmm. simply say, I'm going to take a season and I'm just simply going to be in my day. It doesn't mean I'm not going to do the things of my day, but I'm not going to worry about tomorrow in light of today, whether as a yeah. parent, I mean, and my gosh, as a parent of five kids, right. I yeah, constantly am thinking through, so what does today mean for tomorrow? But that's mm-hmm. true of jobs. That's true of anything, right? So yeah. I, maybe that's just one way to do sabbatical when it's not the fancy version of it. Yeah. And I think that's part of what I really love. I've, I've worked two different barista jobs now, um, at two different coffee shops. And I, one thing that I have really loved about working that kind of job is that I go and I do the things and I set it up well for tomorrow, but really that is only about 30 minutes to an hour of my day is, is setting it up well for tomorrow. And the whole rest of my day, I go and I do the things and I do my job and then I leave and it's done. And I don't think about work after I leave and I don't think about work before I get there. I'm only, I'm only at work for the time that I am physically in the building. Um, and there's something about that that I really, I, th- I think that is how work is meant to be in a lot of ways. I don't think it's meant to be something that just takes up endless amounts of time and endless amounts of brain capacity and you're thinking about it all the time and like that is where all of your energy is going. I've loved, even though they don't always necessarily pay the best, I have loved these jobs where I get to just go and be with people and do my job for six or seven hours and then leave and go live the rest of my life as Mm. well. But that doesn't diminish my working environment, which I, I love so dearly. Like that doesn't, me leaving my work behind when I leave the building doesn't diminish the importance of my work. It just means that there's balance. Mm. I think that's fair. I guess I didn't start really often thinking about my next day until maybe nine or 10 o'clock at night as I would go to Mm -hmm. bed, as opposed to thinking like, what's the week going to hold? What's the month going to hold? All all of that. And so that describes what you're talking about too. I I think too, that to the extent that you can go fallow like that, it does create some space sometimes to be able to hear a little bit more clearly from God. And, And I know that that's a, not always the easiest task to discern God's voice and God doesn't tend to speak in the timing that we want God to speak. And so even that, (laughs) right. Yeah, I know. Surprising. But if I could, and then this will wrap up sort of my section of, of check-in, there were some, there, there was a moment at the end of sabbatical and I spent a little bit of time in Scotland just alone and spending that time with God. I felt really pulled at the end of that time to drive from Edinburgh down to the English borders, which is a drive to the south and to the west, I suppose. It's about a 45-minute drive to the English border. And as you cross over the border, you can go to a place that's called Lindisfarne or the Holy Island, Mm -hmm. where I think it was in the 600s-ish, 
that it was established, it was probably established slightly before that, but it really rose to prominence in the 600s with the building of a monastery there, a church. It's where, among other people, it started with St. Aidan, but then St. Cuthbert. And these are people I hadn't heard that much about. Yeah. I know we had visited it and and I was just so not present to life in so many ways when I was trying to slog through my PhD back in my 30s. So we visited it when you were young mm -hmm. and your mom and, and all of you, I think, took it in in ways that I just didn't and to my regret at that time. But I felt really pulled by God to go back to that island. Yeah. And you can only access it during low tide, which is pretty crazy to be like driving through the North Sea mm -hmm. when there's all, all of the waves are now gone and it's just dry-ish land. It's not totally dry yeah. land. Yeah. So you get to the island and St. Cuthbert was somebody about whom I read that he was from the Celtic tradition of Christianity. And for another podcast, I think it'd be very interesting to talk a little bit more about Celtic versions of faith, mm -hmm. because I think they really help take us into some places in our faith that really do feel sterile and empty because oh, yeah. we so often live in these theologically based faiths and the Celts just understood it differently. And again, stuff that your mom has known and I woke up mm -hmm. to a it little bit later. It has been really influential in my faith as well, all growing up. It for sure has been. And in, in your struggles of Western Christianity, mm -hmm. Celtic Christianity has, I think, been a balm actually in a lot it of really ways. It really has been. Yeah. So I went there and read some of his stories. First of all, his stories were bonkers. Like okay. they didn't seem to have any issue at all with the idea that Cuthbert accessed the realm of signs and wonders and miracles. Like it was crazy what was said about him. His life was recorded by a subsequent saint, Saint Bibi, I think was his name. Beatty? Bibi. Well, probably not Bibi. It was maybe a Saint Bibi. No, it's Bibi now. Oh, okay. So it's Saint Bibi. Saint Bibi. May you rest in peace. I'm sorry if I Aww. messed up your name. He wrote about his life and Cuthbert loved, he, he loved to be more of a hermit, a recluse. Mm -hmm. And he loved to intercede in the spiritual realm. He just saw part of his role was to battle the forces of darkness on behalf of the world, I think, certainly a Great Britain mm -hmm. from his little huttish sort of thing. Which at that point in the 600s, like was the world. It was they just were like, whatever, we are everything. We are everything. And mm -hmm. so he, he did that. And there's all kinds of stories that were reliably recorded about the miracles that he did. One of them was he helped, I think, pray in a group of otherwise shipwrecked monks that were that were traveling out to sea on their raft and they were going to be killed out at sea. And his prayer sort of like tractor beamed them back to dry land. From what I understand, that was one of the stories. What? Another story he felt compelled to spend the entire night in the waters of the North Sea in the freezing waters up to his shoulders and pray and intercede. And he came back to shore and a bunch of sea otters came to him and helped to dry his feet and warm him up. This is all recorded stuff. Now, again, I don't nuts. know what to do with it. What? Another time he was with, I think actually the, it was either the, well, it must've been the queen of, of England at the time. Lizzie I don't know. or someone else? Uh, I, don't, I don't know my queens and kings. Are you kidding Come me? On, I, I literally know nothing. Like half of them James were named and Elizabeth. George. Like if, they, yeah, if, if, if Lizzie, <laughs> James and George, if it's not one mm -hmm, of them, I have mm -hmm. no idea. And he's, he told her, because he had been given the gift of second sight, which I'm not even entirely sure what that means. But he told her in her presence that her king, her husband, had just been killed in battle. And sure enough, what? he had just been killed in battle from what I understand. And That's he had crazy. just gotten it through his second sight. But then the one that really blew my mind. Which also, I do know what the second sight is. So I can try and explain that in a minute after you tell okay. your last story. That would be very helpful. So, well, why don't you tell it now? Because the last story was the one that blew my mind the most. Um, as far as I understand it, the second sight is often referred is like 
referring to psychic ability okay. of some kind. I think he had that. Um, yep. Yeah, where it's some kind of like spiritual other sight that you can see the future or see things far away or like that sort of thing, weird intuition, that sort of thing. That's often the second sight. That's super helpful. I think that's what the reference point was. So the one that really blew my mind the most, and again, this was recorded by a well-established scholar at the time, whether it was Beatty or Beebe, I don't know. <laughs> but, Amazing. but this, this saint uh, wrote that when they opened Cuthbert's tomb 11 years after he died, his body had not decomposed at all. And it became a holy relic that apparently thousands of Christians would make pilgrimages to see the body of St. Cuthbert that apparently still had healing properties. And it existed and persisted in this way for generations. Just, oh my if, gosh. if you are listening to this podcast right now, and you clearly are because you're hearing my words, uh, <laughs> so it's the dumbest thing when people say, if you are listening, yes, you are. And so. <laughs> One of my favorite podcasts. Yeah, I've noticed one of my favorite podcasts, they'll like get into the intro now. They're like a hundred and some odd episodes in and they'll sit there and they'll be like, if you don't know who we are right now, you shouldn't be listening to the podcast. I love that. And so they'll keep introducing themselves as like other people or as each other or whatever. And it's like, so yeah, it is that point where it's yeah, like, if okay, you're if you're listening to the podcast right now, which obviously you are. So I don't know why I'm saying these things. Yeah, exactly. Well, and there's these little hiccups that you, when I used to do mm -hmm. radio all the time, you're just getting these hiccups. And I got once chastised so hard by the, the upper management what? of the radio station when I was referring to people as listeners. I would say, hey, welcome listeners to blah, blah, blah. Why is that and, a problem? And because I wasn't being personal enough, it had to be like, hey, friends, which felt so Ew, false. Because I'm like, we don't I don't know I, you. Exactly. Or hey, family, blah, blah, blah. I just, it felt so silly and contrived. Did so, I tell you, do you, you have no idea who Doja Cat is. I guarantee it. Was that a saint? Oh my God. <laughs> well, BB was a saint. <laughs> okay. So, no. all right, go ahead. Doja, Doja Cat is a musician. Oh, um, right. Yeah, well, we can talk more about that later. We'll get further into that. Um, but Doja Cat has like a very significant following at this point and then came out like somewhat recently. I think it was it was a couple of weeks ago or like a month ago or something like that um, that she came out and she was like, I don't love my fans. I don't know them. And That's like brilliant. it was brilliant. And like she came out and basically was like, I'm not friends with you guys. I don't love you guys. I don't whatever. I appreciate your support. I appreciate that you enjoy my music and I love the community that you guys have built for each other around that. But I don't love you as individuals. I don't know you. I don't know who you are. And that's really weird for you to say that you love me when you don't know who I am. And it's very weird for me to say that I love you when I don't know who you are. And there was a lot of controversy around that um, for a while from her fan base where there was a lot of people who were like real upset about that. But yeah. when, when, when you are the talent, as it were, mm -hmm. whatever the public facing persona the of the talent? organization, I, I, I no, we were, we were described as the talent of the organization. We were the public facing personas to who that would give people access to the ministry or the radio of which I was a part. And then there's people behind the scenes that are constantly massaging the messaging. Like, how do you mm -hmm. need to present yourself? And by the time I would get into it for a few months. I had so many filters on my mind about what had to be 
said to reach the demographic. It didn't even feel like me anymore. I felt like it was airbrush. It wasn't airbrush, but it's that idea, right? What you're what you're presenting is not actually photoshopped. If you what's will, true. yes, I was voice shopped or something. So all of that. Anyways, so, Cuthbert. so say Cuthbert. Last part of that was I was. It was just. It was really worth reading his story. I don't know what to do with all of it. It clearly is not part of my faith understanding that a mm-hmm. body might not decompose and might have supernatural healing kinds of powers to yeah. which again, thousands of people took pilgrimages to until I think it finally sort of disappeared in dust several hundred years later or That's something. Nuts. They preserved it. I had never heard any of this story and it was stunning to be at the Island. And then to wrap this part up, there was one really sort of profound moment for me. Mm-hmm. I was sitting in the shadows of the now crumbling monastery from where St. Cuthbert and Aidan and others had ministered. And it, it just hit me like a ton of bricks that that was 1300-ish, 1400-ish years ago that this was going on. Yeah, and, and it's like, whoa, this story. And I know you're going to talk in a little bit about the importance of stories that we tell. That was a good segue, It was. I wasn't even Dr. planning Kapsner. it. I wasn't even planning it. And But the story is what really struck me, that mm-hmm. I'm sitting on this island in on this soil where 1300, 1400 years ago, these events were happening. And so from that, I wrote, if you don't mind, I'll just read my half page reflection from the end of Mm -hmm. sabbatical about what happened in that time. So here it is. I went to Holy Island where Christianity grew in the United Kingdom in the seventh century. Sign and wonders kinds of stuff from St. Cuthbert. I was humbled by how long God has been redeeming his people and how expansive God is. There I found I had a somewhat uh, profound end to sabbatical. I find it's common and well-intentioned for Christians to enter the second half and the twilight years of their life. This is me now, right? Mm -hmm. I'm heading the second half of life. Wanting to leave a legacy or something behind for the next generations. And I get it. But for my personal journey, I realized and was convicted of today that however well-intentioned, such efforts can also just be another endeavor to give personal meaning to life. I mean, we're, we're always trying to structure our life mm-hmm. so that it feels like it's meaningful. And I, and I understand the impulses of legacy, but I was like, hmm, I kind of feel like I'm going to try to derive meaning from that, right? Yeah. And so as I sat in the shadows of the ancient cathedral on Holy Island as the language of the theologian and the admonitions of the preacher to have an undivided heart of service to God suddenly and unexpectedly were whispered into me by the spirit deep into those tender and vulnerable places of the soul, those hidden places where conviction and fear and insecurity and transformation and hopelessness and hope all reside in a singular mashup. And here's what, here was the whisper about that undivided service. God does not need our legacies or our something behinds. God is redeeming the world. He's restoring all things and his purpose is nothing less than the release of all creation, that the wonder and the beauty and the delight that is his essence made visible to us may shine again as heaven and earth will be made one. He incredulously invites us to participate with him in this work, the same God of St. Cuthbert 1300 years ago. I was invited and convicted and humbled and hopeful all in the same moment. And I felt loved. Always deeply and fully loved for we all are, every person. Mm-hmm. Bono may not have been found what he's looking for, my favorite <laughs> song, <laughs> but I have. He alone is worthy, truly. There is indeed a pearl of great price. Mm. And I, I think just in writing that, uh, it, I just felt staggered when I realized the story that we are a part of. And all of these events that happened all of these years ago. And Cuthbert hasn't been forgotten, but mostly forgotten. 
I, yeah. I'm apparently a theologian who studied such things and I'm not sure I'd ever heard his story in all this time. And so I have, I had left my teaching behind and was pretty quickly forgotten. And mm-hmm. that doesn't, that it's not bad to be forgotten, but I think in light of that, what gives meaning to life was really heightened change brought into sort of stark relief as I was sitting in the cathedral there and just looking forward to the second half of life in a different kind of way that I hope feels sabbatically mm-hmm. day in and day out, even as there might be more like producing and moving forward, yeah. but just feels like being present in the day. So those are my reflections from sabbatical. Hmm. I love that. And it's funny because I was, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday while we were sitting there and I realized I like had that thing where I opened my mouth and then I was like, that sounds it. What I was going to say sounds so sarcastic and bitter, but I just meant it so truly and deeply because what we were talking about was a, a story that he had to read for a literature course, um, a fictional story about a missionary who went to Japan during the time when um, all of the Christians in Japan were being persecuted and forced to give up their faith. And the missionary was caught and told that he had to publicly renounce his faith um, or all of his followers that and the community that he had built would be tortured and killed. And so we were sitting there and we were talking about it. And the question that we kind of came to is, okay, would you do it or not? Um, Would you renounce your faith? And it's it's interesting because as we were talking about it, we both with without hesitation were like, yes, I would to save their lives because I think there is a phenomenal difference between like the public renouncing of faith and the private internal renouncing of faith. So too. And, and the thing that I said that I was like, and this sounds so sarcastic and bitter is um, I believe in a God of radical love in terms of, we were talking about how there are a lot of people that we know who would say, no, I'm going to stand by my faith, even though it condemns all of these people to death. Um, and so, and my response to that was no, but I believe in a God of radical love because my friend's follow-up question to that was, but do you think you would get to heaven and not be allowed in because you had renounced your faith to save mm-hmm. their lives? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, no, because, because you were doing it out of love. You were doing it out of the love for your community and because there is that difference. Um, so I just, I think stuff like that is so interesting in terms of the idea of feeling loved in all of these places, in in unconventional spaces and ways of existing and the um, like brutal humanness of life to to feel loved in that kind of way. I think that story that you described too, we're so often so petty in our interactions as human mm-hmm. beings. And, and that includes me. I lump myself into that pettiness. And I think that when we apply that pettiness to God, as if God is sort of this petty tyrant in the sky, who's yeah. always looking to not be offended and appeased, we end up serving a very weird God in, in yeah. light of all of that. So, mm-hmm. well, you've, you've been working within story. I know story as, yeah, especially as an so English much. major is incredibly important to you. And I think that's really important for our faith journey as well is Mm -hmm. the stories that we tell and and walk in. So talk a bit about where you've been in your spiritual journey related to story. Yeah, absolutely. I have been um, engaging with story and with the creative process as a whole in a completely different capacity than I ever have before. Um, Because my senior SEM project is for me to write the first full draft of my manuscript of a novel that I've been working on for a long time, just sort of on and off. Um, And it's been really like, hmm, 
It's been a very complicated process. It's all been very fun. It's all been very weighty in a lot of ways, um, but also just really beautiful to kind of sit in that capacity. One of the things that my professor said a couple of weeks ago was the idea of um, writing is not something that you have to do. It's something that you are allowing yourself to do. Um, so in the middle of the rest of my day, she was framing it in terms of like, oh, I'll let myself watch just one episode. I'll let myself have a phone call with a friend or whatever. Right. And she was like, no, writing is something that you are allowing yourself to do because you love it and it fills you and it makes you happy. And I was like, oh, that's right. I do love this, even with the deadlines. Um, but yeah, I've been playing a lot with ideas of life and death and identity and um, what are you willing to sacrifice. Um, the idea of you can't serve two masters has been kind of a, a turning point in my work right now. And then I think I'm not sure totally where or when this crept in, but all of a sudden I noticed that I'd been writing from this perspective for a very long time, um, is the idea of the inevitability of grief. And so even the, the preemptive grieving of something that hasn't happened yet, but mm. you know how it's going to end. Um, that sort That's of an thing. interesting concept because I, mm -hmm. I think we all know our lives are going to end and I think we know our relationships will end at least in this life in the way that we experience them. And I find myself instead of, instead of preemptively grieving, whatever you entirely mean by that, I haven't heard that term before, mm -hmm. but I find myself scrambling to either enjoy the fullness as much as I possibly can in light of the fact that it's going to end, or I just sort of live in denial, <laughs> yeah. which is most yeah. of my day that, that this is going to happen as opposed to allowing ourselves space to really grieve some of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've been, I've been exploring it through my characters where they both have this sense of, um, we know that this isn't going to end well for either one of us, but this is, good and beautiful and true and so we're going to choose to step into this anyways even though we know how it's going to end hmm. um and so there is a lot i i have a character at one point um early on who makes some decisions and some self-sacrifices fully fully knowing that it is going to cost her her life and she does it anyways and she does it with a smile because hmm. she's like okay i'm i'm gonna do this because this is what needs to be done um, yeah. And then some of my other characters, it's more about the, the pursuit of that something more that they have been longing for. And they both kind of have this sense of like that something more is going to overwhelm me and I'm going to keep looking for it anyways. Um, in, in the acknowledgement that things are going to be beautiful and wonderful and hard and joyful all along the way. Hmm. Do you play around with at all in some of this um, expression of grief and, and life and meaning in that I mean, it just with, with afterlife concepts. And yeah. the reason why I bring it up is that 
I am always so compelled when we watched the Lord of the Rings within mm-hmm. the third episode of the Lord of the Rings when Gandalf and Pippin are in yeah. Minas Tirith. And it's pretty clear, at least to them, it seems, that all hope has been lost and they're going to meet their end. And Pippin is really struggling with that idea. And Gandalf has this incredibly sweet interchange where he just invites him to imagine uh, when, when he says, you think this is the end? I mean, mm-hmm. Gandalf is actually yeah. a bit scandalized by the idea that Pippin thinks all of this is going to come to an end. And then he has this beautiful description, at least through the eyes of Tolkien, of what the life is to come. Do you, do you play around with that at all in terms of finding, like, I just can't imagine preemptively grieving without a sense that that's also not the end, even though there's going to be loss. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I haven't, I... I'm kind of waiting to see where I'm going to end up by the end of this draft before I start bringing in ideas of the afterlife. Um, But that is something that I have played around in. I spent pretty much the entire month of June um, just doing Celtic research, um, research into Celtic folklore and and all of that. Um, And there was a, a phrase that I really loved at one point of the idea of the Celtic longing for something other that we know we will never find in this life. Um, but a lot of the concepts of like other, like capital O other worlds or other lands or whatever, wherever they are calling them, um, that is their concept of the afterlife as well as being something that is accessible during life. And so I'm kind of playing with that idea here and there where I'm like, oh, they're coming and going from this other world. And there are some characters who are going to end up staying there. Um, But I haven't, aside from some concepts of like ghosts, but not as we think about them traditionally, Mm -hmm. more like not like spooky Halloween ghosts, but like the essence of spirit left behind by a person. Um, That's kind of as far as I've gotten with the idea of afterlife right now. Well, it makes me wonder if we should even call it afterlife. And the Mm -hmm. reason why I bring that up, and maybe you've already played around with this too, is there's of course that famous passage of scripture that's used in many funerals where we grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no uh, no hope. And so it's the idea that the story is not the end. But I wonder if instead of we had, instead of this idea of somewhere in the future, there's an afterlife. I wonder if we played around more with the idea that there is an other realm. Yeah. And when our spirit leaves our body in this realm, it gives us access to another realm in which there is dwell. I mean, this would be consistent with how the early church thought about things is that mm-hmm. there is a dwelling place that is other. And it's not, I mean, it's after this life. I understand that. But I think when we think of after, at least when I think of afterlife, I think, well, sometime in the cosmic millennial future, we're going to be reunited as opposed to the idea, no, there's just a different realm. There's another place in which there's dwelling. Well, like the Grey Havens. Well, exactly. Well, and even as I was doing all my research, I was thinking about the Grey Havens And the Grey Havens, for those that haven't uh, read The Lord of the Rings, is is the place where the elves are and they leave Middle Earth and go to the Grey Havens, but they had come there from the Grey Havens Mm -hmm. initially. So they're still present. They're just in another realm. Yeah, but even the whole idea of the Grey Havens, um, the the color scheme and crossing the sea into the West and the whole thing, that all is Celtic folklore. That's what that is, is you cross the Western Sea and it takes you to the other world um, where you are forever young. And that that is a core belief in, in Celtic folklore. One of my favorite little um, stories that I stumbled across is that it's the idea of there's all these other islands, right? And the other lands are in the other worlds. Um, 
and one that I think I had to get up and leave the library for a minute because I was like, I'm going to start laughing really loudly if I don't get up and walk away and then come back. Um, is there's a series of folk tales about this hero, Cormac, who is going, which is such a Scottish name, it's by the way. It's a great name, yeah. Um, who is going through all of these different islands and he comes across the Isle of Women and he and his men are there for a year and a day and the celebrations and blah, 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 the whole thing. This sounds very Odysseus, like Iliad kinds of oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Greek um, weirdness. Right, super weird. And they are preparing to leave and as they do... The women are like, all right, you got to be here one time. And if you come back, the second you step foot on this island, you're going to turn to dust. Wow. And I was like, that's one of the most intense things I've ever read in my whole life. But that's hilarious. And I did find a way to work that into my, that. Into my manuscript kind of passively. Um, but yeah, all that to say, I've been thinking a lot about story and about the creative process and how to do that in a way that is sustainable or like my professor likes to say fruitful um, instead of exhausting or demanding. Um, and one thing that I have been thinking a lot about is the importance of story and the importance of how and why and where we tell our stories and the and the impact that that can have on the world around us. Well, I think the way you're writing this story actually is way more inviting to me to consider some of these ideas mm -hmm. than if you weren't telling it in story form, if you weren't trying to address it in those ways. I really, I've never had this thought before that as I think about people in my life that have been so meaningful that I didn't preemptively grieve. Yeah. Uh, but, I, but I have since grieved, of course. But to think about them right now as present in another realm that is currently inaccessible to me, at least mostly. I do mm -hmm. I do think there's plenty of intersection of which we're aware and not aware. And that goes back to St. Cuthbert to me, is that there is a version of faith that seems to have been reliably recorded, of which I am entirely unfamiliar with, you know, sea otters coming up and, right, and spiritual, yeah. like all of that stuff, right? But it just, for right now, it's comforting to me to think, that the people that I care about are still present. They're just present in another realm as we're waiting within my my Christian belief of the idea that Jesus will return and pull all of the realms together again into yeah. one. And there's something that's comforting about that idea, but I don't, I'm not sure I would have thought about that idea without what you're describing related to stories. So how and mm -hmm. where and, and when and why we tell our stories, it's way more inviting to consider things through story, I think, yeah. Than it than it is just in raw conversations, certainly as opposed to theological conversation so often. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, one of the things that I have really appreciated about kind of this exploration of that preemptive grief is the idea that things can be beautiful even if they're temporary. Mm. Um, and that bittersweetness doesn't just mean that something is bad or wrong. Um, that you can have that that longing and knowing that it's temporary and and the sadness and the grief that can come along with knowing that this is going to end, but that that doesn't take away from the beauty of it in the meantime or the wonder of it. Um, and so that's something that I've been playing with a lot. But even um, mom and I were talking about this earlier a little bit. We saw Into the Woods 
over the summer at the, I think it was the Guthrie, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a local theater for sure. Yeah. And they did a, a wonderful job. And it was funny because I had seen the movie when it came out when I was like 11 or 12 or something. And, and my takeaway was the whole chopping off of feet thing with Cinderella. That was my takeaway from Into the Woods. Well, understandably so. There's, there, for right? me, I know that it's a really well-loved movie. I would just say for me, I walk away from it enjoying much of it and feeling disturbed by certain things. So. Absolutely. And actually, I have a thing about that in a second. Um, but we saw the play and I remember then walking away from it just going, oh, this whole idea of there's a there's a whole song where they say... Um, children might not hear you or like children might not listen, but they will hear you Mm -hmm. is the idea. And they are listening to the stories that you are telling them and they are learning from them, even if they don't always then obey you. And I think that is such an important concept because that is so much of the point of Into the Woods. And it's part of why the whole second act is as really dark and disturbing as it is, is because it's the idea of like, okay, you did all of these things to get your happy ending. Now you have to deal with the consequences of them. Um, and you have to be careful what stories you're telling and how you're telling them and where you end the story because the children are learning. The children are learning about the consequences of their actions. The children are learning if you do this, then this. And so even if they might not listen when you tell them, don't run into the woods by yourself, they're going to remember all of the stories about what happens when you run into the woods by yourself. Totally. That's that's a great example. And so having that idea and then with the idea of I didn't walk away from the play feeling disturbed, but I have walked away from the movie feeling disturbed. And I had a similar experience um, with West Side Story, where I so deeply love the movie as well, because I think it's beautifully done, both versions of it. Um, but I I walk away feeling so heavy mm-hmm. after seeing the movie. And I think um, we talked about this in one of my literature classes, and I'm sure I've said it on here before, because I say it all the time. But it was the idea of theater in particular as a way of practicing grief tragedy as a way of practicing grief because then when it's done they all come back out on stage and they take a bow and you get to see tangibly this was only a story and now it's done and the feelings that you felt were real and they affected you and now they're over and now you get to go and live the rest of your life and you don't get that with a movie it's just the end and then it rolls credits interesting yeah, I think that helps describe it a bit uh, to to see some of that because it, it just that when when the baker's wife uh, played by Emily Blunt in the movie sort of loses her way and gets lost in the woods. Yeah. And just and then obviously um, tragically mm-hmm. does she die or it's not self-inflicted. It's, no, it's she not. Just, it's she an just accident. But it's just I don't it just left me kind of bleh, like mm-hmm. diseased in, in my spirit. But but even that. I think because it's a story that's being told, mm-hmm. it does help evoke ideas and thoughts about life and, and faith and relationships that that matter at the end of the day. So I'm yeah. I'm curious where your book is going to go. And is your I'm goal, curious too. Your goal is by the end of this year to have it finished and mm-hmm. something that is published, and not and, uh, not calendar year by but academic year, or is it by no, calendar? No, it's year? by calendar. So year. by the end of this year, hopefully it'll yeah. be finished and yep, you'll be published. Maybe. Well, no, not that. <laughs> it does take no, a while. No, 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 no. It no. does take a while. Uh, we will hopefully by the end of this semester, I will have a first draft, and so then I can send it to. To editors of some capacity, um, hand it over to my professors to have them look at it and then begin the very long, slow journey of, of potentially getting it published. Um, I'm not totally sure 
what direction I want to go with that yet or not. Um, but mostly this project is an idea, um, the way that I presented it to my professor when I had to pitch the original idea last spring was I I want to prove to myself that this is something that I can do and that I have a story that is worth telling. Because if I want to spend the rest of my life doing this, I'm never going to have a better time to do it than right now. Um, and I am never going to have a better support system around me than I do right now. And so if this is the space where I learn how to do this and fall on my face along the way, I have people right now who can pick me back up. And I have guidelines around that that I won't have later in life. Mm -hmm. And so this project for me is more in the essence of like a a test run of what I want to do with the rest of my life. Brilliant. Love it. Well, should we have just one more short conversation mm-hmm. about uh, this idea of Hesed that we talked about at the yes, beginning absolutely. and that can set up some future things? I love what you said at the beginning that we're going to continue to to hopefully just have these versions of conversations that anybody can really start entering into, just wondering about, so what does my spiritual life look like in my day? What does faith look mm-hmm. like in just sort of the average normal parts of our day. And, uh, and alongside of that, what does it mean to be growing as a follower and as, uh, as somebody, as a disciple and in, in community mm-hmm. and all of that. And I ran across a book that was evaluating the brain of all things. It was written by psychologists. And I, and I think the book has quite a bit of merit. So that was such like disdain oh, written know, by no. psychologists. <laughs> no, I had psychology as part of my background. And two of my favorite professors were psycho- psychology professors just loved every bit of it. And they, but they have, the point is, is that sometimes theologians probably should not be practicing psychology and sometimes <laughs> psychologists should probably not be practicing theology, right? What? Yeah, Weird. I know. So, but, but yeah. we love to play in other fields sometimes. And I think they fairly did play in some fields, but the thing that they, that they pulled out is while I don't think that their actual definitions of Hesed love were consistent with scripture in some ways, Mm -hmm. they were able to recognize what Hesed love does for us in our lives and the importance of it. And so Hesed love, I think, broadly understood biblically is that binding covenant relational love clearly expressed between God and his people. And and yet it's meant to permeate our relationships as well. We are meant to be in relationships that are not just because of affinity or temporary or by choice or whatever. We're meant to actually just do the journey with one another. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so in the book of Ruth, which I think is for both of us, one of our favorite books of scripture, right? An example of Hesed from that is when, Naomi tells Ruth to hang out in Moab and just stay here while Naomi's going to go back to the promised land. And mm-hmm. Ruth says, nope. And Not she, doing and, it. Yeah. And then her five statements are these five statements mm-hmm. of Hesed of where you go, I will go and your people will be my people and your God will be my God and where you live, I will live and where you die, I will die. And, and that's that Hesed love that's, mm-hmm. they're not going to leave each other. David and Jonathan had very yeah. much that Hesed love. Well, and really quickly about Naomi and Ruth, too, that it's not just the Hesed love from Ruth to Naomi in those statements, but it was also a Hesed love from Naomi to Ruth in her telling her to stay in Moab because it was the idea of you won't have a future if you come with me. Right. So you need to stay here because you there will be no life. There will be no future. There will no there will not be any like sacred continuation of life 
if you choose to leave this place and come with me. Um, And obviously Naomi ends up being wrong about that, but it is out of this place of trying to protect and care for and and love Ruth as deeply as Ruth then turns around and loves her. So the possibility to part company while retaining Hesed is, is there too in that story. And so that's well, well said. And, and I think what we noticed and, and what I had to speak about at a local church Mm -hmm. was just the idea that one of the experiences that we've had in these last 30 years of church, where church is functioning mostly as a business, as we've talked about in season one, where the church is trying to develop programs and be kind of a business to tease in consumers who are Mm -hmm. church shoppers. And they live in sort of this subtle, unspoken interchange that as long as the church is providing the products that I want, then I'll continue to shop here. And this whole back and forth thing that happens, but what it, what it does and what these people are pointing out in their book is that it ends up creating these very low Hesed environments where you might be together for a period of time in a congregation, but you're only really there as individuals for your own personal reasons. And you're then mashed up with a bunch of other people for a period of time, but you, you ever, you sort of always know it's in the air Mm -hmm. that somebody can leave and there's really no reason not to leave. And, and, or there's no reason to, if if somebody is committed to leaving, then that's it. There's nothing that's going to hold them together. But that that also ex- extends to our jobs. So often they're just transactions. They're low Hesed environments. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think sometimes as one of the hard parts about the divorce culture in which we find ourselves uh, today, and and I say that hesitatingly because I feel so bad for the response of the church so often to people mm-hmm. that have been yeah. divorced. Is it's either something that has not really been talked about or helped over the years, or it's kind of you have the scarlet letter where yeah. you're permanently branded with a D on your forehead for divorce. And there just hasn't yeah. been healthy teaching about... We'll smile to your face and yeah, kind of and be like, oh, wow. And, and it's primarily because pastors didn't really even know what to do with it. So they swept mm-hmm. it under the lug, uh, rug and left it... Under to the, the lug. lug. Yeah, <laughs> the lug. And they, and, and they left it to then the Chris, Christian gossip, mm-hmm. you know, grapevine to yep. sort it out. But divorce, it, it fractures Hesed. And so when we start thinking about things like anxiety, and this is what we can talk about in future episodes, there seems to increasingly be the idea, I would suggest, of a tie between the level of anxiety that we experience in life and the level of hesed that we're experiencing in life. And if we don't have people with whom we feel like are our people or part of our story and we're part of their story, and we're in this journey together, not because of a temporary affinity or a transaction or a job or whatever it is, you end up feeling so alone so often doing your life when you're living in a low Hesed kind of life. So it's something that I would love to explore in the future as we're talking about all of these different concepts Mm -hmm. is how do we increase Hesed in our lives and what might that do to some of the anxiety of the day, because what I have found, and I've said this before, most of the young people as I'm returning now back to the classroom from sabbatical, it hasn't changed. When I ask them the question, are they isolated, lonely, feel like they're only living their story, they don't know who their people are, it's the same thing, uh, and they don't. And if I ask them, are they feeling anxious as a result of not having a people, they're like, yeah, I don't don't even know where to turn so often. So... I think there's a revision of the church coming. Mm -hmm. 
Meaning that I think the church is probably as an institution is there's a reckoning going on with these massive megachurch movements that however helpful they've been, maybe in some ways they've yielded incredibly low Hesed environments where literally as you're turning off the lights in the auditorium, you can't even see the person next to you as you're enjoying the show up front. And so they've, they've unwittingly, but certainly created a whole generation of very low Hesed Christians. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be really worth talking about that in light of how do we do this journey of faith and spirituality and growth and the kind of the conversations you and I are having, but other people undoubtedly are having. I just don't know that we can really do them the way we want to do them if we're not also growing in Hesed with at least a few people. Like I don't need a thousand friends, but even just a few people that I can lean in and trust in a higher Hesed situation. No, absolutely. And I think the only, I mean, not to keep bringing it back to this in every episode. But I think one of the only uh, communities that I've ever been a part of where I was like, oh, that is a Hesed community is Roots. And Roots was the place in Edinburgh where you daily gathered as university students. I feel like students. at this point, Roots is like you and me, where it's like, if you're listening and you don't know what Roots is <laughs> I, by now, like, come hey, on. Hey, I'm finding more and more people are coming and saying, when are you doing this again? I just picked up the podcast, whatever it is. Oh, so I don't know how fun. many new listeners we have, maybe 11. But, uh, but you know, to the 11 new listeners of Do Deeper Magic. Do you imagine having the, having the the boldness and the self-confidence to start a show in the middle instead of at the first episode? Well, I think people do. That's terrifying. Well, I, I, know. I don't but, understand that but, at all. So Roots is a, kind of a really cool coffee <laughs> yes. shop of a gathering of university students. It's and not a coffee shop. Well, it was you a, say a that place. Every time. Sorry, it's a place that serves coffee. They have <laughs> coffee. They have coffee, but it was a very high Hesed environment. It really and, was. And yeah. it was, you just it couldn't is. wait. Yeah, you just couldn't wait to go each day. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And even when I was there, um, I was there from the end of May through like mid to late June and they were only open for about four or five days after I was in town. And I literally, I was there every day because I was like, I want to spend as much time with these people as I can. And even though a lot of the people that I know or had known while I was at Roots during the time that I was living there for school aren't there anymore because they've graduated or were study abroad students like I was or whatever, um, they, it, it was as welcoming an environment, the, the people who were there, even though they were different people, carried the same mentality. Mm. Um, and there was still that that core to it of, no, we are a community. And as soon as you walk in these doors, if you want to be one of us, you can be. Yeah, I love that. Well, wherever we go from here, I do hope it is within the context of other people that we continue to do this journey with. Because mm-hmm. to wake up to that need for these relationships, I think I just would be curious if somebody had a chance to live in a, hes- a higher Hesed environment for an yeah. extended period of time, how that might just sort of settle some of the collective angst that we're understandably feeling these days, it seems. Yeah, absolutely. And then just a, a quick thing about that with our kind of impromptu break that we took over the summer, it definitely wasn't planned. We both right. were like, well, let's take a week. And then a week turned into three months. It did. Um, but yeah, I think I was finding that that Hesed community in a lot of different places for one of the first times in my life in that capacity where I had to rely on my, in my community in new ways. And so we've just kind of laughed on and off about the idea that in the middle of our mental health series, we took a break for my mental health, Indeed. Indeed um, we did. which I, which I think was funny, but it really is like the, yeah, the things that I processed over the course of the summer and the ways that I have grown and changed and the way that I am living my life now is very different than the way that I was living my life three or four months ago. Um, and, but that is really only because of the support of my community. And that isn't something that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. 
But in return, it wasn't just that my community had to support me. It was that I had to let them. I had to choose to lean into my community, which is scary and hard. Um, But I am actively choosing to do that still on a on a daily basis. And it has been so transformative in my life. And that is hard for all of us. All of us have been left by people. We've all been um, burned by people. It is exceptionally difficult to try to develop a higher Hesed kind of situation in light of the pain that we all carry mm-hmm. relationally. Well, glad to be back in the saddle yeah, with you. Yeah, I've missed and, this. Yeah, looking forward to the year ahead. I know that we have many different plans, not just for this podcast, but for other things related to Deeper Magic too. Um, yep. Some of them will have to wait a little bit until you're done with school. Other things might pick up. <laughs> so many things in so my many, life are so waiting until do, school. But we're glad to be back with all of you listening to the Deeper Magic. This is episode all one. Listeners. All you listeners. If you're listening today, we're glad <laughs> you're back. <laughs> we're best friends, actually. Uh, for episode one of season two, and we will catch you again next week as part of the Deeper Magic. Say bye, Anna. Bye. Bye, Anna. episode is Auroras of Saturn by Music L Files. You can head on over to filmmusic.io and find that there, all licensed under Creative Commons 4.0. Viewable on the site as well. <laughs> <laughs>